0: is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Don't do that. Bloodfest is a gathering of freaks and degenerates celebrating mindless violence and gore.
1: Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and
0: Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode. Episode 185
2: Here's a Boo Crew Fright back In 1963's The Birds... Alfred Hitchcock revealed on The Dick Cavett Show That 3,200 birds were trained for the movie He said that ravens were the cleverest And the seagulls were the most vicious
0: It helps out the show so much When you not only head to Apple Podcasts and rate the show But when you take a couple of minutes to leave us a quick review as well We absolutely love connecting with you And we will read your review at the beginning of each episode Leo, who do we have this week?
3: We got a review from someone that goes by FMGRRR RR And they write, Like a really good morning show that likes to talk about horror. And they say, I tried them out because I'm a huge Bailey Sarian fan. I decided to hit subscribe and have no regrets. They are fun and interesting and really know their genre. Even if I didn't like her, I probably would listen. Great dynamic. And they rate us five stars.
2: Aww, that's so awesome. I love Bailey too. Like... That was one person that I said, we have to get on the show because I'm a huge fan. I just love her and she was so awesome. So thank you for sticking with us. That's super rad and thank you.
0: If you'd like your review read at the top of the show, head to the Boo Crew on Apple Podcasts. There's a movie from 2011 that has gone viral on TikTok and social media over the past few weeks. Viewers claim they are being traumatized. Some convinced it's real. It's become somewhat of a dare To even sit through it. Over 200 million views on the hashtag and counting. It has soared to the number one spot on IMDb as of this recording. A cautionary tale about the dangers of online predators. It's called Megan is Missing. We're going to go behind the mystique of the film with you, with a very rare conversation with writer director Michael Goy and the two stars of the film, the wonderful Rachel Quinn and Amber Perkins, who are very much alive and well. They answer everything you've wanted to know about the movie and how they made it, including the film's very important message. This is a fascinating chat, and we thank you for being a part of it.
3: Episode 185 starts now. Who
1: wants some horror. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for... Horror
0: Homework. We're going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Mr. Leo in the beautiful downtown... Eagle (laughs) Room! To each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth the revisit, starting as usual with Leo.
3: Greetings, you freaks and ghouls. (laughs) Have you guys seen... 2020s, okay. The, Netflix just gave birth to this movie in on November 27th. This one's called "Don't Listen." No, I've
0: not. Another one we have not seen. No, I was not there for the birth.
3: <laughs> you weren't there for the baby. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, it was a messy, it was a messy birth. The thing about Oh, uh. this one didn't know anything about it, so I started watching it and did not realize till halfway through that it's not even in English. It's in Spanish.
2: (laughs) How do you not realize that? I thought you were (laughs) going to say, I realize it's not a horror movie.
0: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I was watching the Cuddles Network.
2: Oh, oh, Cuddles, That's sounds Oh cute. yes,
0: our rom-com network we're going to start.
2: Cuddles. Yeah.
0: Rom-com on demand. Ugh. The Cuddle Network. No. It also yeah. The
2: Notebook 24 Tonight
0: on Cuddle, The right. Notebook followed by The Vow.
2: Oh, I'm so down. <laughs> Sign me up for Cuddles.
0: And after Titanic.
2: <laughs> I don't think you want to cuddle to that. No? Isn't that a love movie? It, it, yeah, it but they, totally so is. many people die. I mean, I guess it's a love Spoiler story. Spoiler alert. I'm sure I spoiled U.S. history for a lot of people. Anyways, continue, Leo. I'm sorry. We're just like...
3: No, no. This movie... No, but you know the funny thing about this, Lauren, is that I'm watching it, right? And the lips are actually moving almost with you know the language. So I'm thinking, oh, English-speaking actors, um, you know, it's in English, right? And I realized there's something weird with the lips, right? And I looked into it, and I'm like, oh, it's a Spanish movie. So I I was actually watching it with English, you know dub translation whatever you know but, oh, okay uh it, it played just fine though so the original title of this movie is also known in spanish as Voces, which means voices okay but this one's called don't listen in english it's directed by angel gomez hernandez who also created the story and he also wrote it with like five of the writers this movie stars rudolfo sancho as daniel who plays the dad belen fabra who plays sarah the mom lucas blas who plays eric the son and Guillermo del Toro's favorite monster actor, drum roll please, Javier Botet. Woo! Playing some creepy-ass ghosts. So, this movie unfolds with Daniel and Sarah, and uh, they have a nine-year-old son, Eric, and they've just moved into a new home, not knowing that the neighbors call it the House of the Voices. Eric is the first one to notice the odd noises behind each door. Now, right off the bat, it's revealed the son, Eric, has some kind of premonition or like, quote unquote, visions that are brought upon from auditory sources, such as a walkie two-way radio or baby monitor or toys. He makes these illustrations of murder that's about to occur in just about real time. Because of this going on, there's a lot more that goes on that I can't Reveal, but I'll tell you this much, that an EVP and a paranormal expert and his granddaughter uh, come in to help the family. They set up recording devices, computers, and thermal cameras, and this is where the story takes off. The movie wastes no time in going to dark places and leaving you wondering what's to come next. It does some really fun things with dark negative space, where you think you saw something lurking in the shadows or in the dark background corners of the room. So keep an eye out for stuff like that. And uh, the film has some disturbing imagery at times. It's not afraid to hold back and then show you something shocking. There are some well-earned jump scares that come out of nowhere, especially one in particular that made me jump like out of my seat almost. The music is um, by this guy named Jesus Diaz. It's quite fantastic. At times, it complements the static and voices heard on the walkie or devices and really uh, making those scenes even more suspenseful or scary the film takes some interesting turns that i did not see coming especially the third act leading to some historical european events that happened like hundreds of years ago so i totally recommend this movie uh again it's titled don't listen and it's currently streaming on netflix
2: sounds fun
0: yeah very cool man lauren and i checked out a movie on vod from 2018 on one of those random things where you're just scrolling through and you look at the poster art, almost like the video, old video store days.
2: Yeah. You know, when you oh, browse yeah. the
0: aisles and you pick up something based on the box. And this right. is a, a horror comedy written and directed by Owen Egerton, whose other work includes the award-winning Follow back in 2015 and Mercy Black from 2019. He stars in the film as the master of ceremonies of this outdoor Lollapalooza type haunt event that is kind of like... Coachella meets Knott's Berry Farm. It's super friggin' cool actually. Did I say the title yet? Maybe I didn't. No. Nope. Bloodfest.
2: Bloodfest. Oh. Have you seen it?
3: No, I have not, but but I've always I always see the title and I'm like, I gotta watch that, I gotta watch that. And I've never seen it.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. So it's a group of kids played by Robbie Kay, who is also Peter Pan in the TV series Once Upon a Time. He was also in Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. There's Jacob Batalon, who is Spider-Man's buddy Ned in the MCU. And Canadian actress and internet personality Barbara Dunkelman, who went to high school, actually pretty close to where I grew up just outside of Ottawa, Canada. I
2: bet she oh. likes poutine.
0: Probably. And Falling Skies say <laughs> Shell And they attend this event only to find that the organizers of the, of the event have nefarious intentions and they must fight to survive the night facing off against everything a Scream Park has to offer from psycho clowns to killer nuns, zombies, and chainsaw-wielding maniacs.
2: My dream. Right? Sounds so fun.
0: <laughs> you could smell that. <laughs> Cotton candy smelling fake smoke that they use at the, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about?
2: It's, it's the fog and then the yes, gas the fog from the chainsaws. Yeah. And
0: but, the two of them make like a cotton candy smell?
2: I, I wouldn't <laughs> call it cotton candy,
0: but... Really, I kind of equate it with cotton candy.
2: That's interesting. I wish they would it's make... It's its very
0: like, own smell, right? You know
2: what? One of the Bath and Body Works candles that we always light smells like that fog.
0: Oh, that's cool.
2: It's like not even something you would think. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right.
2: It's like toasted bourbon. Yeah, or apple
0: bourbon or something (laughs) like that. There is actually a candle making company, I believe they're on Etsy, that do have a candle inspired by the smell of the fog at Universal. Why don't we have that? I don't know. We haven't tried it out yet. We should try. Yeah, I'll put an order in. The film had its world premiere at South by Southwest in 2018, was released on Rooster Teeth's own on-demand service. It's a super fun, character-driven horror comedy that does not hold back on the gore. It's an absolute love letter to the genre. You can tell it's created by fans for fans. It's self-referential. It's got so many great send-ups and tributes to the tropes and films we all love from Saw to Evil Dead to Romero's zombie films to Cabin in the Woods.
2: Yeah, I really liked it. It was really, really fun. And it just brought me back to going to haunts. And then I got a little sad. But then, when people started dying, and it was really exciting, I got over it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And how fun was You're like what? the hilarious appearance by Zachary Levi?
2: Oh, my gosh. That probably was my favorite part because I love Tangled. It is such a good movie, and it's on constant rotation in this house. He was at our eleven year old's graduation virtually. For the ceremony, and I got really excited then.
0: Oh, yeah, he did that. That's yeah, right. It
2: was really cool of him to do a little speech about how they didn't get to graduate in person and that, you know, this pandemic's going to be over soon. That was in June. Um, so I don't think his psychic abilities are working very well. But he was great in this movie. I just wanted to note that when... The group enters the Bloodfest Park and the gates get closed. The camera does this aerial shot of the area. Yeah. And you can see the layout of the park and it looks a lot like Disneyland, the layout of Disneyland.
0: That's a great shot. And yeah. everything's like sped up and they show you this thing. It, it looks massive. I wish it was real.
2: Wow. Oh, yeah. We would all go
0: the acting is great the lines are hilarious the zachary levi appearance is unbelievable with some awesome flynn rider jokes thrown into the mix oh, flynn. <laughs> so check it out we saw it on hulu also available on amazon prime this is the boo crew podcast Just want to take a sec to mention that the following portion of the show contains content that may be disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Hello,
4: my friends on TikTok. This is Michael Goy, the writer-director of Megan is Missing. And I was uh, got a a text from Amber Perkins, the lead actress in my movie, that it was exploding on on TikTok at the moment. And I didn't get to give you the customary warnings that I used to give people before they watched Megan is Missing, which are do not watch the movie in the middle of the night do not watch the movie alone and if you see the words photo number one pop up on your screen you have about four seconds to shut off the movie if you're already kind of freaking out before you start seeing things that maybe you don't want to see so apologies to those who are already posting about how the movie has freaked them out but fair warning to those of you who are still contemplating watching the film Thanks.
1: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
0: Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio are three incredibly compelling storytellers. Rachel Quinn is an accomplished actor and dancer. She's starred in everything from commercials to features. She's been award nominated for her work in stage productions, starred in 2010's multi-award winning short film, Kaka Nirvana, and the five-time award winning web series, Squaresville. Also here with us, the amazing Amber Perkins, who appeared on the multi-award-winning series Still Standing, Seth Rogen's award-winning comedy Bit Taylor, among other features and projects, and finally, writer-director Michael Goy. He has won multiple awards for his work as cinematographer in things like 2014's The Town That Dreaded Sundown and the iconic American Horror Story series *and Scream Queens. He's been nominated for five Emmys, for everything from Glee to My Name is Earl. His credits as a director include Pretty Little Liars, Nashville, Swamp Thing, Charmed, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, 2019's mary starring gary oldman and emily mortimer and so much more in around 2006 our three guests got together and created a polarizing and controversial film that resonated in such a unique way that it has developed a mystique about it even being banned in new zealand it's almost as if it lies dormant and then every few years cyclically rises up and becomes this urban myth a terrifying rite of passage to experience a dare amongst friends even Most recently, a few weeks ago, went viral amongst TikTok users, the hashtag currently getting well over an unprecedented 200 million views. It's been trending on Twitter and has been questioned and shared on social media. A film shot through the lens of found footage is a cautionary tale about the dangers of online predators called Megan is Missing. We are honored to welcome its writer-director, Michael Goy, and its stars, Megan herself, Rachel Quinn, and her best friend, and the one we truly take this harrowing journey with, playing Amy, Amber Perkins. Thank you again so much for spending some time with us today. We are thrilled to report you are all very much alive and well. (laughs) So, we wanted to start with the girls. What do you guys think of all this recent attention on the film?
5: it's been uh insane i got a message one day just saying uh people were talking about it on tiktok and out of nowhere it just exploded it's it's been insane um it's it's weird because it's been so long and i know we have like little like spurts of things like this happening but this is a whole different thing it's been it's been really cool you know and um to have a platform to actually say things about not just things like this going on but other things happening is, is kind of awesome rachel what do you think
6: yeah i mean i i'm in the same boat i've just kind of been surprised every time that it's had a resurgence i'm not on social media so when it all came up on TikTok, i turned to amber and i was like do you know what's going on (laughs) but um it kind of makes sense to me now i think it's really especially relevant now with most of us being locked down at home and kind of confined to just the internet and all of our interactions are kind of limited to digital and online so i completely understand why a movie like this becomes so relevant in a day and age like this and the message only becomes that much more important
0: also i mean the integration of technology is even got even further since when this film was made which is incredible it's such an important part of our lives that we all deal with has the three of you stayed in touch regularly since the making of the movie
4: uh, more or less kind of on and off. I mean, uh, it's interesting because uh, Rachel just kind of alluded to it. Their personalities are actually radically different than the characters that they play. Yeah. Amber is much more the Internet queen and Rachel is, is not. But in the movie, you know, it's, it's totally the opposite. So I think uh, people are, should be pretty amazed that their, their personalities are actually very different than the, the parts they play.
0: Well, Michael, if you could tell us a bit about the genesis of the whole thing, the whole story behind Megan is Missing from concept to execution.
4: Yeah, it really kind of started. I, I was working on a television show, which was not a uh, a pleasant show to work on. And and I don't normally watch television, but I'd, I'd come home and I turn on the TV to just decompress after a, a filming day. And and there at that time, there were all these shows about internet predators and abducted children on TV, and and they were treating it in a almost like a jokey fashion, you know, it was almost like a reality show where, you know, they would give you little teasers. Like, you know, when we come back from this commercial, this man is going to take off all of his clothes and wait for what he thinks is a 13 year old girl, you know, things like that. And I was going to go into a movie right after that television show. Mm -hmm. And the, um, tech advisor on that movie is actually a, uh, an investigator who investigates missing children. And he was assigned to a case that I had seen on television. So I started asking him about details of his investigation and he talked to me about it and he showed me things that, uh, you know, normally they don't talk about. And I asked him about other cases. And then he gave me the phone numbers of those investigators who worked on those cases and so, what happened over the course of two years of time was that i was I was researching, I became fascinated with a their work and how they went through the the clues in these cases and and b, what could I do? you know because when you when you look into the mouth of evil the way I did for two years you end up feeling helpless, much, much like the people who watch the film feel, you know, and I felt like I had to do something. And then I realized, well, I'm a filmmaker, I should just make a movie about it. So I got my friends, Mark and Melanie Gregnani, who had just moved to Los Angeles and wanted to make a movie to get themselves going in the business out there. And we self-financed the movie. We went through production for $35,000 and shot the entire movie in eight and a half days. Because I didn't think anybody was going to watch this movie, going to want to watch this movie. I knew how grim the movie was going to be before we made it. But also, you know, I wanted to, to be able to have total control over it. And for, for probably the only time in my life, make the movie exactly the way I wanted it to be. And that's what we did. It, it took a while to
0: cast the movie, though. It took nine months to, to find the cast,
4: including Amber and Rachel
0: we'll throw it over to the girls now so Amber how did you first become involved in this
5: I got an audition my first audition and went to it and it was a lot lighter than the other auditions I had afterwards I hadn't read the full I didn't get to read the full script until I had got the job so I had an idea of it and then once I got it I was like oh wow okay, this is uh, a lot crazier than I had expected but um, I mean with such amazing people and you know I mean Michael is to be able to work with him was just amazing it was a process, but uh, and I had heard when I went into that they had went through processes already, audition processes with other people, but it just wasn't working out. I don't, it was crazy. I feel like it happened so fast, but it did actually take time.
0: And then over to you, Rachel.
5: Yeah, kind of the same
6: story. Got an audition for the movie, and when I was prepped about it, it's so funny because I know it falls under the genre of being a horror film, but it just never, I never really thought of it that way because I, we were so immersed in the message and why this movie was being made, that, that that was really what the movie was about. It was about getting this message across and warning young teenagers and parents about the dangers of internet predators. So to me, it was just getting kind of involved with the message more than a horror film. So it's just something to kind of talk about it in that fashion.
4: And Amber and Rachel came in, obviously, very late in the casting process. I mean, uh, originally, Mark, Melanie, and I figured we would cast the movie ourselves because the budget was very small. And we put in ads in in the trade papers for um, actors who were eighteen uh, to play younger. But what ended up happening was we got a, a lot of late twenties, early thirties actresses coming in 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 wearing Catholic school uniforms and stuff auditioning for the roles that I needed to be kids. And it was not the movie I was making what they were auditioning for. So at that point, we realized, okay, we need a real casting director. And so uh, we hired Sherry Henderson, who works on a lot of the, uh, the shows that employ youthful actors, because I knew that she had a line into all those uh, the kids, the kind of kids who were talented that we needed. And that's how we got the cast.
2: Amber and Rachel, how old were you when you guys got the script and started filming?
5: Me personally, I was 17 when I auditioned and when um, uh, I had booked it. And then I believe I signed the contract on my 18th birthday or right around my 18th birthday.
6: Yes. Yeah, I think I was 17 the whole time, but we were both
0: 17 when we got involved. And Michael, what did you see in both uh, Rachel and Amber that made them the perfect fit for the roles?
4: It was It was the combination of the two of them. The way they inhabited the roles just felt like I could believe this friendship that they had and finding finding the right ensemble for the movie was was very difficult there were some very very talented actors who, who came in but were looked way too young looked like they didn't fit the dynamic you know they were 11 or, or 12 years old you know so and then we we found a couple of very very talented people who were older than the roles which who i ended up using actually in other parts of, of the uh, the movie like nikki christie who was the uh, the incarnation of megan in the recreation video so it was the the combination of the two of them and and how they played off of each other and when i we put them together in one of the audition tapes uh, i was i was like well that's it you know these are the
0: the people michael as a parent just the dialogue itself between these girls is terrifying at times so far as almost a disconnection as to the severity of the things that they're inadvertently describing and talking about. For instance, the scene where inadvertently they talk about a sexual assault like it's commonplace. That one scene just froze everything in the room for us as parents watching it, wondering, is this the kind of dialogue our daughter is going to be having as commonplace with her friends one day? It freaked us out. It sucked the air out of the room. Talk about building that dialogue.
4: Well, it was... um... You know, I made the movie right around the time that my wife was pregnant with our first child. So the prospect of having children in the kind of world that I was bringing children into was was really forefront in my mind at the time. When I started developing Megan is Missing, I realized when I started to write the dialogue that I didn't have an idea in my head of how young people actually talk. So, but I have friends, all my friends had already had children who were 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. By that time, I started having children very late. So I asked their permission to video record and audio record their kids in conversations with their friends, basically just hang out with them. So I had the permission of the kids and the parents. And the deal with the the kids was that I would not play any of the tapes or talk about what they talk about with their parents, you know and the parents understood that. So I started recording them. And after a few days, they became very comfortable with me just kind of like hanging around with, with a camera and pointed it around. And, and they, they started talking about all these things, what they talk about with their friends. And, and that was the moment where, where I kind of felt like I was completely disconnected. I had no idea what was actually going on in the world because Uh, A lot of these kids had had so uh, separated, like the physicality of of things like sex from the emotion or the, uh, you know, every everything became about just technique and all this stuff. And and that was very eye opening to me. The party that they took me to in North Hollywood one night, which I recreated in the movie, was very eye opening. I mean, that wasn't originally in my script. I I put it into the script after they had taken me to this party. And I saw all the random drug use and and the casual sex and stuff going on there. So everything that that Rachel and Amber and a lot of the other kids in the movie say was actually transcribed from those tapes. There's very, very little of anything that I, I just kind of wrote as original dialogue. Most of it I was copying off of those recordings.
0: Unbelievable. Now Rachel, was that scene of dialogue in particular challenging to handle?
6: When presented with the content, yes, but like Michael has explained, it was all taken it was it came across very natural the way that it rolls off the tongue, the way that I think that <laughs> age would speak. I mean, we, we weren't that far off at that point in our lives from how old these kids actually were. Right. So um, it did feel a lot more natural to me, but the content, as I'm sure it comes across to you, too, is quite shocking. Yeah,
0: no, definitely. And Amber, you girls have such a fantastic chemistry on screen. What was it like to build that together? And were there any moments that came out of improv or playing off each other?
5: Uh, yes, for sure. Um, working with Rachel was amazing. We just happened to click. It was awesome. That doesn't happen a lot in general in life, even with people you work with um, at any kind of job. But, um, yeah, I think my favorite scene, which which part of it was improv. The last scene right after, you know, the burial, talking about their life and what they want to do. And they sing the whole baby shark song or whatever. That's before it became super popular. <laughs> 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 I we're, we're doing that. And uh, there was more to that that wasn't put in. But and then we went into the scripted part. We like kind of transitioned to the scripted part. That probably has to be my favorite scene. But yeah, we just I don't know. We clicked. I think so. I was so lucky to get to work with her because it just felt so natural. She felt like my friend.
0: Let's talk a bit about the production itself. Was it shot chronologically or what was the first thing you guys remember shooting?
5: Feels like it was very chronological. I mean, uh, my last scene was the basement scenes. So as far as I'm concerned, it felt like it was pretty much pretty much in the order.
0: Michael, was that a goal for you to do that? Well, largely, yeah.
4: There were there were a couple of things that we had to shoot out of order simply because of uh, of uh, location issues. But uh, largely, I was trying to keep it in chronological order. I will say that there, um, you know, we were limiting shooting days because of the ages of, of some of the the kids in the movie to about six and a half, seven hours a day you know our longest day was 10 and a half hours and we did 32 pages in that day because i was able to stagger the actors so the fact that all of these actors just knew the script forward and backward really enabled me to to move that quickly and uh, you know a lot of a lot of the conversations that amber and rachel had in the movie were sh- were shot in in that day the the computer chats
0: Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that. What were the mechanics of creating that illusion of the girls speaking into the webcams and having them converse with each other and then speaking to Josh and everything?
5: It was crazy um, because of how it was filmed, and it kind of felt like it was a little bit of ahead of the times because people weren't so much video chatting at that point. Right. Um, so Michael already, it reminds me of like The Simpsons where they always seem out of the game. <laughs> yeah. Michael felt like this kind of way. It was different because I now I'm more used to doing this kind of thing. I wasn't at that point yeah we would i remember when some of the things like even when josh was talking the character josh was talking to us or whatever he would be in a different room and we'd have a little earpiece to hear it it was completely different i think i would feel more used to it now just because it's what we do
0: so rachel were, were people actually on the other end of the webcams or were they literally just feeding it were you guys just staring at a camera filming your scene and was the audio of the other person being pumped in through your ear
6: i don't think we saw the other person did we no, I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, we just had the we had the earpiece, but I mean, it's, it, like yeah. Amber said, it was ahead of the times. So it wasn't something that we were doing on on our own lives on a regular basis, but within the course of the movie and doing it for hours at a time, it, it felt pretty natural. And you know, we were in a real house setting; it wasn't a stage, mm-hmm. so everything was was made to feel very comfortable and natural. So.
4: Yeah, and that, that's the, uh, the amazing thing about the performances that they, they gave is that they, they at no point could they see each other. They were looking into a camera. I had two uh, cinematographers, one with each of them, and I would choose which one I would be with, but we were shooting them simultaneously while they were talking and then piping the sound to them, but they couldn't see each other. Now, I, I subsequently was cinematographer on a, a web series called uh, Web Therapy with Lisa Kudrow. And uh, all of that is supposedly done in web chats also. But we had, you know, monitors set up in front of the lenses so that the actors could see each other and react off each other. But in Megan is Missing, they did all of that without ever seeing each other. Oh, that's wild.
2: Being a parent, this was a really hard movie for me to watch for him as well. What was it like, Amber and Rachel, showing your parents the movie when it was done? Did you watch it with them? Do you remember (laughs) that experience? (laughs) you go first i mean they were very well prepped so right so
6: like from the time that we got the audition to the time that they saw anything they were very well aware we wouldn't really have even done this without their permission so everyone was on board for what this was it was obviously very hard to watch it i think my parents watched it one time and they were like i'm i can't watch this again which i totally understand especially now that i am a parent <laughs> it's been a while. They, I mean, they were really supportive. And again, everyone was on the same board and same page about why we were doing this and understood the importance of the movie. So
5: yeah, completely agree. Uh, we also, our parents, our, our moms at least were on set during filming. So they already had an idea of what was going on. I remember the last 22 minutes that we were filming, both of our moms were like, we're walking away. And so they they are like, we're going to go for a walk. And they went for a walk because it was a lot to handle to hear. They didn't see it, but to hear it. But yeah, they, my mom was the same way. She saw it and she was like, okay, yeah. Like I, I, I don't need to see it again. It's, it's all right. Um, I, I love you guys. And I understand why this was done, but I can't, I can't see even my own sister. She's like, please do a comedy next time. Me <laughs> <laughs> we were very involved.
6: Like our, our parents were very involved. And like Amber said, especially our mom, which I'm now in retrospect, so grateful to Michael for not only allowing that, but pushing for that so that our parents were there, not just for their own sake, but for us. So that yes. everyone had a support team on site.
4: Yeah, that was that was a requirement. Um, before before we signed the kids contracts or before we had the parents sign the kids contracts, I made it clear to them that they needed to be on set. The parents every single day that one parent had to be there, not a guardian, not a babysitter, but an actual parent. And if if their child showed up without without one of their parents, then I was not going to shoot them that day. You know, those were the rules. So, you know, things you know, and, and like when we were shooting the party scene, at one point, I, I kind of like zoned out and I uh, had to walk outside the, uh, the location for a second and think because and one of the parents came up to me and said, what's wrong? And I said, I, I realized that I'm, I'm asking kids to, to demonstrate things that they have no actual life experience with, whether it be sex or drugs and stuff. And it makes me, frankly, uncomfortable. You know, and she told me that that she understood when she and her husband read the entire script, they understood that there were things that their child may not understand. But she said, you know, the kids trust you and they will ask you about it and they will tell you if they just do not want to do something. You know, so so I was like, okay, all right. You know, because it it was it was that sudden weight of responsibility of of. Not only making a movie,
0: uh, a powerful movie, but affecting people who are performers, you know, their lives as they go forward. Now, that makes sense. What was your intention in casting that bit of commentary, reflection and context as to what's going on in the film with those news reports and the reenactment that we see with Megan's abduction?
4: Well, you know, I mean, it it comes off, I think, in retrospect, as being maybe overly critical of of news and media. I I think news and media is very helpful in a lot of cases. In uh, some cases, um, I feel like the the need to have kind of proprietary uh, news uh, that nobody else has is, you know, to get ratings or customers or whatever. It drives things in a direction that is less helpful. I remember seeing one uh, video of a, a child abduction taking place. And it was so surrounded by graphics and uh logos and, and everything. And they're asking people to help if they've seen anything. And I was thinking, wow, I'm so distracted by all the the chirons and everything around it that I I'm not even focusing on what's going on. And that was the the point of doing that that section where we remove all that and then we show the the, the raw footage and we we zoom in and it so we know what it is that we're talking about. So I think the, the media can be extremely helpful, but also, you know, in the quest at that time, I think it's getting better now, but at that time, most of the missing children reports on television were cute like girls, you know, if, if a, a black boy in, in South Los Angeles went missing, you didn't see that much on television about, it, and certainly not like half hour specials about the abduction of this boy or whatever. And at that time, almost 50% of abducted children were actually boys, but most of them are, are minorities and, and just didn't get the kind of airplay. So that was part of the point I was making with Megan dismiss. also when I cast it, because I sit on, on the, uh, the board of, of many diversity committees in the industry and people question, well, why why are the, uh, the leads cute white girls? And I told them it's because that's what people are used to seeing. And I need to, to tap into what they're used to seeing every night on the television when they sit there and turn it on in order to take them where I want them to go. you know. So it was and there was a lot of calculation
0: in that, that process. The way you use negative space and not inform us of it until later is absolutely chilling. Talk a bit about conceiving that idea, particularly the moment under the bridge with Josh kind of looming in the background.
4: Oh yeah. Well, compositionally, I mean, uh... The the great thing, the the highest compliment I've gotten from a lot of kids is that what did did a 12 year old make this movie? You know, (laughs) did somebody who knows nothing about filmmaking make this movie? Yes, absolutely. You know, because, you know, everybody who worked on the movie, um, you know, had professional experience and it was my fight to make the movie look like like nobody made the movie like you know at that time I had what maybe 30 or you know years of experience professional experience in the business I wanted it to look like like this movie just kind of fell off the apple tree so it was a fight to to kind of hold on to that and so doing all those things which I had conceived of but still making it fit within the uh the concept of nobody having made the movie was actually fairly difficult you know because i was trying not to make a clean composition of of things that i wanted to have a, a creeped out feeling about ultimately i preferred having things be messy and like the viewer could could find something, you know, if they search hard enough in the frame, they could find something as, as opposed to having it presented to them. So it was, it was a calculation based on what I knew I need to do compositionally to tell the story with what I felt I needed to do also to keep it real, keep it feeling real.
0: That said, talk about your decision to make that final 22 minutes or so an absolute nightmare.
1: The boo crew will be right back. Ultimate horror. The screen's most fantastic fiend is Luce. The good Dr. Frankenstein, more monstrous than the monster he created, running amok with a transplanted brain of a madman. Frankenstein must be destroyed. See the place where life completely stops and complete terror begins. See the dead brought back to screeching life see the bloody revolt and vengeance of dr frankenstein see the most fiendish monster ever conceived frankenstein must be destroyed all new and all too terrifying from warner brothers in color rated m mature audiences
0: that said, talk about your decision to make that final 22 minutes or so an absolute nightmare.
4: Well, I wanted the audience to, to be holding out the Hollywood hope that at any second, the, the uh, helicopter, uh, you know, Xenon light would turn on and there'd be a blast on the, the megaphone saying freeze and, and everything would be okay. And I wanted them to hold out that hope until the sinking feeling arrives that there, there is no hope that, that's just not going to happen. So it was always a plan to to dig the, the grave in real time. Plus, I wanted to show that it really takes an effort to dig a shallow grave. You know, people say on TV, oh, the body was found in a shallow grave, like somehow it means that the person was in a hurry, or they did not actually mean to kill this person. Well, that's a shallow grave. You know, it takes a huge amount of effort to do that. So when we shot it, it was um, it was tough. It was tough for Dean Waite, who played Josh, to dig it. We shot it twice because wow. I needed the, the timing of when the, the camera leaves to the cold blue gray dawn, which is what I wanted. It was it was still dark by the time we first shot it, so we shot it twice. Number one, number two, there is a cut in that. Th- sequence i removed 11 and a half minutes out of the middle of the digging sequence it was actually it, i think it goes on for nine minutes right now it Was actually over 20 minutes but it was just going on way too long so i removed a bunch of time out of it and um i wanted yeah i, I mean i just i just wanted people to 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 realize what we're actually talking about on these news reports you know when they talk about well the child was sexually assaulted well it's rape it's rape it's 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 there's nothing you know it's not sexual or anything about it i mean it's a, it's a violent assault on a child and that's what i i wanted to show you know and at the end of the movie i wanted to show what it actually takes to kill somebody
0: and yeah yeah. i mean you do it you almost force us to watch right you force us to You don't look away. The camera stays there the whole time throughout all this. And that's the part that we take with us when we when we leave.
4: One of my friends who's a very famous cinematographer told me when he saw the movie at the the premiere, he said, I I feel like at one point you stopped torturing your characters and you were torturing the audience. Mm. And that's exactly right. I didn't want this to be a movie that people would sit and watch. I wanted this to be a movie that people would see themselves in and experience in a personal way.
2: Have any parents of kidnapped kids or kids that have been sexually assaulted contacted you with their opinion on the film?
4: A few, a few. But the first, honestly, was Mark Class, whose daughter, Polly Hannah Class was abducted, raped and murdered in Petaluma, California in 1993. Um, Mark had heard about the movie through through somebody. I, I was still just finishing editing the film when Mark called me and said that he had heard that I'd made a movie about child abduction and he really wanted to see it. And I knew who Mark was because when Polly went missing, I passed around flyers in Los Angeles with her picture and information on it. So, I sent Mark a copy, a preliminary copy of the movie out of my computer to him and his wife, Violet. And then three days later, I flew to San Francisco to meet with them to talk. And... Um, you know, they they said that they had watched the movie twice and most people can't get through the movie once or find it difficult to watch the movie more than once. And um, they said that it was the only movie that they had seen that actually honestly and realistically depicts what happens in these cases, you know. So Mark ended up traveling with us to, to various Uh, cities and locations around screenings of the movie and talking with the audience afterwards, because the audience is usually fairly shell-shocked talking to the audience about what they can do on a personal level to safeguard their families. You know, so Mark was the first, a few more uh, did contact me. Some police organizations contacted me as well, both to commend me for, the accuracy of of what is contained in the movie, but also to to say that they can't show it anywhere because it, it you know it, it bumps people out. But um, you know it's it's uh, it's it's obviously a really sensitive subject, and and a lot of the people who have very negative reactions to the movie, I totally understand, totally understand. And it's interesting because I've gotten hundreds of thousands of uh, messages and, and approaches from uh, mostly kids all over the world. And the, the girls are very introspective about how the movie makes them feel and, and they relate it to their own habits on the internet the, the boys tend to be kind of all over the map the movie makes them feel helpless they get angry they get angry at me they start lashing out at me and stuff like that and that's their way of dealing with it but the girls for the most part have been very uh, kind of targeted
0: and understanding about what what is going on and why rachel what are you hearing from people who are trying to reach out or things you've heard
6: It's pretty. That's pretty much the same that Michael's been saying. A lot of people, especially now, they want to make sure that um, Megan and Amy are still alive. Yeah, (laughs) I know that's an important thing for people to see now. But yeah, I think it's just people are shocked at what can go wrong, and you know, there's always the sense of, but that would never happen to me. You know, because I'm not that .001 percent and That was our goal was to show what can happen to the point zero zero one percent and why it's so important for parents to have this at least an awareness of what your kids are doing or who they're
0: going to meet now more so than ever. Like our kids are we got a six year old, an eight year old and an 11 year old who are playing online games where they're talking to people on a daily basis that. We weren't even doing back in 2006 to that extent. And now they do it every day. I mean... terrifying. Yeah. I mean, we went to bed after seeing this movie just like... I I had visions just going on in my head all night. It was the first... Film that I can honestly say kept me up all night. And I've seen a lot of horror films. I've seen a lot of things that have very graphic and disturbing content. But this in particular affected me like nothing else I've ever seen and continues to haunt me to this day. But actually has like real world effects on probably the way that, you know, we handle our parenting at this point, which is an amazing gift from all of you guys. We thank you guys very much for making this film. Now, Amber, I'll go, go to you uh, with the same question. What kind of things are people reaching out to you about?
5: Um, Honestly, the same things. Uh, I'm not trying to sound boring, but the same things. Uh, Everyone wants to, especially with uh, Rachel, everyone wants to know if she's alive because she's not really into social media. Um, Everyone's very big on that. Um,
1: uh,
5: A lot of people want to know if it's real. And what I tell them is that, you know, for us, luckily it wasn't real. We were filming it. But unfortunately, you know, things like this happen to people. So it is real, not to us, but for other people, unfortunately it's a sad reality and it's going on now and it's going to go on forever. And I think a lot of people think, okay, well, you know, it's like Rachel was saying, you know, it's not going to happen to me, but you never, that's what everyone says before it happens to them.
3: Michael, did you get to consult with uh, a child psychologist or a therapist that perhaps deals with abuse and child survivors of abduction, uh, sexual abuse, rape, et Because on that note, uh, the part, uh, you know, at the end where your character is pleading for her life, rambling off all these things that she'll do, is that based on actual psychological behavior or response uh, of being in such a traumatic situation? I think of things like the Nightingale effect or Stockholm syndrome.
4: Yes, I did. Uh, I did consult with a psychologist who told me about the different stages that, that somebody would go through in those cases. And, and specifically for the, uh, the rape scene, I did consult with two women from a rape crisis center on their experiences, the two who were, were willing to talk to me about it. Um, You know, one was a, uh, a young girl, uh, you know, at, at the time it happened uh, or a minor. And then one was a woman in her twenties and it was, you know, how I ended up directing Amber in that scene and uh, how I ended up shooting. It was really based on, on what it is that they had told me. And then the significant thing for me was that uh, both of them these interviews happened separately with the two of them um they told me the same thing that at a certain point during the the rape they just kind of shut down and and it was almost like it was happening to somebody else and not to them and it was the only way that they could mentally deal with it at that point was was to tune out of it and you know it was really important to me that was the one thing i wanted to get across that tuning out that loss of innocence and stuff in in that, that scene. And, and uh, it was, I think one of the only scenes that we shot, uh, I think we shot it six times, Amber, six or seven times, you know, normally we didn't do that many takes on, on stuff, but, you know, it was really me trying to capture that, that feeling on her face as this is happening, because that, that was kind of the whole point of it. And I think we I ended up using take 2 as as I recall because it, you know what, what you did uh, Amber in, in that that scene and and everything was just really great the only thing that I didn't like about that that one which is why I ended up shooting it again after that was was the amount of blood on Dean's uh hand because when when he put his hand off screen I accidentally put too much on there and then we couldn't get it off by the time he put his hand into the frame. But at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? The performance is is just so great. And take number two, I'm going to go with it.
0: Let's go to you, Amber. I mean, your performance in the whole second part, you have to go to extremely immersive places as an actor and the way you dealt with the material is so effective. So talk about the challenges of filming that.
5: It was wild. And to be honest with you, when we first went to our screening and we had a Q and a afterwards, um, Someone asked how many times we filmed that scene, I was like, once or twice. And I was like, no, we filmed it quite a few times. And I guess I had kind of checked out, to be honest with you, uh, in that scene after filming it. But I do remember him specifically telling me, uh, you know, um, it's, you know, it's happening to you. And then it's kind of like, kind of like your soul just leaves your body. Like you're just not even there anymore because it's just so much trauma happening to you. And that's when I realized, okay, so like I, you know, it's just like giving up basically. Like you see it in her eyes, just completely giving up. That was definitely crazy. I'm not going to lie. It, it it was, I I was so lucky to work, you know, he he made sure to only have a couple people in there when we were filming. And like most everyone was out. It was, it was the smallest amount of people I had filmed with during that entire film in that room. But, um, and Rachel was kind enough. She was done with her scenes, She was kind enough to stay for like my scenes. Cause I was like, please, like, I, I just want someone here. Yeah, it was, uh, it was intense. It was intense. And I, it took me, you know, like, a day or two to kind of shake it. I'm going to be honest.
4: And it was, it was hard on Dean too. I mean, yeah, was. Dean was really really because Dean is nothing like Josh, you know, no. should go without saying, but, but Dean was really, really upset. And, and he, he, he wouldn't even hardly touch you, you know, when, when the things are happening, he's, he's off screen, he's slamming his hand on the table to make it rock because he did not want to have any part of, of touching Amber's body. Yeah. So uh, and every time I said, you know, let's let's do it again. Dean Dean would just dissolve. And, and it was the only time he raised his voice. He was like, why? Why do we have to fucking do this again?
0: You know, he's still upset. How about the whole last part in the, the barrel, Amber? How was that illusion achieved? Were you off site? was it ADR was a voiceover. How, how did they do that?
5: Yeah, it was like an ADR thing. So I, I was actually in the barrel um, with some water. So it sounded like it flushed around. And the lid was on most of the way, but not all the way because, you know, need air. He basically just told me to kind of ad lib uh, while I was in there. And I thought I, I did what I would have done if I was in a barrel. I would have screamed and fought and then eventually realized that's not getting me anywhere. Oh, sorry. It's not going to anywhere. And then I would have I offered him anything I had, myself, my body, my life anything just, just to get out. You know, I I think that's what I would even do now. If I was in that situation, I would scream, try to get help. And if it didn't come, I would offer him whatever I could.
0: Right. I think that's what all of any of us would do. So none of that stuff, a word for word, wasn't all on the script. You were just kind of acting to whatever you felt.
5: Yeah. He kind of, yeah. He kind of just told me like, you know, what would you do if you were in that situation? And it took me a second. I was worried at first and I was like, no, I would, I would, I would do anything.
4: Yeah, I think in the script, uh, there, there were only three uh, sentences of, of dialogue space, spaced out uh, about, uh, you know, based on what I talked to, uh, to the psychologist about, of where her mind would, would go at, at certain times and stuff like that. And I just really used those three uh, sentences of dialogue to, to kind of clue Amber in to making those transitions, you know, to take, take herself there.
0: And then Rachel, of course, we have the infamous photo number one, photo number two, which uh, again are, are triggers for a lot of people. It, the, the images that really seemingly come out of nowhere, almost like a jump scare, but they really sit in your head forever. I, I got to admit, they're haunting images. What was it like to be a part of creating those images?
6: Yeah, I can't. I can't look at those either. I've had some friends who are like, I found this photo of you on the internet. I was like, please don't text it to me. I don't need to see that photo anymore. That was fairly traumatizing. Obviously, I did not have to go through, you know, hours of shooting, being in a barrel or a rape scene like that. But that was really physically uncomfortable. I mean, everything that I was actually in was actually the headgear thing, the torture device and what my head and arms were in and I mean, couple that with, you know, mentally where you where you go and what you realize you're portraying is just, it's a lot. So you have to, like Amber said, you got to take whatever time you need and shake it off. And then you have to find a way to walk away at some point and go home and turn it off because you can't live in that.
4: Yeah. That, that, that was the big failing on, on my part that um, because uh, Rachel uh, Rachel, everybody knew that everything was based on, on real, uh, research on real surveillance videos, photos, you know, news reports on everything. And she had asked me if, if she could see, uh, one of the photos that, that inspired a uh, photo. I think this was during the sixth day of shooting before we, sh- we were going to shoot the, those scenes. So she'd have a better idea of what was going to be involved in it. And, um, I, You know, I I tossed it around my head for a long time. I was like, no, no, I can't do that. And then then I I agreed ultimately to show her one in a tremendous lapse of, of, uh, you know, of what I should have been doing, Um, you know, and I I showed her one and and she just froze. And And then you started to cry. I remember, Rachel, because I, I think, that, that <laughs> yeah, everything just kind of became real. I mean, to, to that, uh, up to that point, I think, even though the material was fairly grim, I think everybody was having a fairly good time making the movie. And, and that photo kind of like made everything that we were doing, you know, just suck right into to reality. So, and I, I regret that to this day, you know, that, that okay. I showed you that photo.
6: I, there's a reason why I would have asked to see that. And I mean, as, as much as it can help to know that this is a film and know that we're filming, I mean, at the end of the day, like, again, it's important that we know why we're doing this and the unfortunate, horrible realities of what actually happens. So
4: I wanted to say something about the makeup on, on Rachel in in that moment, because uh, James Lacey, who I'd worked with in Chicago did the makeup, for for her and and uh, I, I gave him three directives, you know. And you were hours and hours in makeup. I remember it was a long time, but I gave him three directives. I said, number one, I need to know that this is Megan. You know, she has to be immediately recognizable because the the image is only going to be on screen for less than a second. Number two, I need to know that she's dead. And number three, I need to know that she she suffered horribly in the process of dying. I said in, in the space of 20 frames of, of film, in the space of less than one second, those three things need to register with the audience right away. And I thought that his makeup design was was brilliant because it, it really fulfilled all of those things in a flash.
0: Right. So that, that for the scene in the barrel you're talking about when the, yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah. unveiling of the barrel. So that was actually you done up in, in makeup.
6: Yes, it was. And luckily for me, the contacts that were so they're so big, they're actually bigger than the white of your eye, which was very difficult to get in. But um, they were they blinded me. So I, I could not see anything. I could see the difference between light and dark, but I couldn't see anything else. So that scene, the logistics of it were actually I think we had to film that a couple of times because the logistics of shooting me in the barrel and the camera goes off the barrel, I have to get out of the barrel but I can't see anything. So I'm, I'm basically being lifted out of the barrel before they bring Amber over and put her in the barrel.
4: Yeah. And Amber I'll, has I'll, to keep I'll... screaming all the time <laughs> while, while they're lifting you yeah. out and stuff. The camera's facing the other way because, you know, we're, we're trying to keep the illusion going. I mean, basically two people couldn't fit into in that barrel. So we had to get Rachel out.
2: Do those photographs actually exist?
4: Yes. I've deleted them off my computers and and drives Um, they were they were of uh, somebody who who was actually uh, killed in um, I believe it was Philadelphia. Mm.
0: Talk a bit about how the film was received when it first came out and eventually getting into the hands of Anchor Bay.
4: It wasn't received at all. (laughs) I mean we we sent it Mark Melanie and I sent it to 57 film festivals and were rejected by every single one. I did get letters, though, from some of the festivals, some very high-profile festivals. Those selection committees would send me letters and say, you know, we really debated Megan is missing. And a whole bunch of us want to show it. But, you know, we have corporate sponsors we have to answer to. And, and uh, you know, this movie is going to be very controversial, and, and we can't run it. So that went on for a while, and then I figured, okay, no festival is going to show this movie why don't we just try to find a distributor? And we started showing it to distributors and and just like nobody would even respond, you know. And a year went by and Anchor Bay and Stars, the parent company, um, called up and they said, you know, we saw Megan is missing a year ago. And every month in our acquisition meeting, we talk about it. You know, should we pick up Megan is missing? And we say, no, no, we can't put that movie out, you know, and stuff. And they, and they said it's been a year and we're still talking about your movie. So if we're still talking about it, then we should put it out there. And so that's what they did. They, they put it out there with no, no really no advertising, no, no fanfare, no push or anything. It ended up on uh, Netflix as a part of, of a package of films that, that came from stars and, It took about two or three years. Um, You know, some kids uh, found it and then they started talking about it. And that was kind of like the first wave of uh, Reynolds what happened on Netflix with kids who found it over
0: there. Has there been any anything that's arisen out of the recent attention as far as people asking for either a sequel or remakes or any sort of thing of the like to continue the story?
4: There was a talk, a serious talk from Mexico, uh, Mexico City, a studio there who wanted to uh, remake uh, Megan is Missing in Spanish. And they asked me if I was interested in going to Mexico City and remaking the movie. And I kind of really was not. This, This was maybe about four or five years after I'd made the movie. I didn't really want to revisit it again. I told them at that time, you know, if you want to do your own remake, you know, we will we will give you the, the rights to using the title and stuff like that. But they, they didn't want that. They wanted me to go do it. So, and I didn't want to do that. In this last wave of attention from TikTok, uh, there, we've been approached by several distributors for different territories like Germany and Asia and things like that. But there's a a, a larger distribution chain that's already involved in it. So, you know, we, we have to sort out, you know, what other territories we can give the rights to.
0: Gotcha.
3: Yes, Michael. I know that these very dark, evil stories are what ignited your passion and drove you to tell the story and make this movie. Have you considered uh, making a follow-up to this movie? Not necessarily a sequel, but perhaps more on the missing kids that end up sex trafficked or slaves in the wake of uh, Epstein news in recent times, or perhaps exploring the whole conspiracy theory of online retailers and the overpriced furniture with code names, with names like Rachel and Amber, that kind of stuff. Or, or you know, it, it seems like even though these uh, stories, whether they are real or not, explode all over social media for awareness, but they seem to get buried in the mainstream press and simply not covered. Yeah.
4: Well, I mean, uh, you know, there was, there was talk about, you know, do we make Megan is still missing? Um, You know, what, what do we do with, with this? Um, You know, honestly, the only angle on revisiting this for me would be to do something that that centers on the people that I originally learned about all of this from, which are the forensics investigators, the the people who dive into the um uh, the the clues and, and pursue these things. Um you know, which which is why, you know, Mark Mark Class, uh what he's done with his organization, the Class Kids Foundation, is really um of vital interest to me and actually anything that I made on, on Megan is missing went to class kids foundation. But, uh, I, I, I think, you know, that would be the way that I would even remotely think about revisiting this is to do it from the perspective of the people who have to, to figure these things out and and piece together the clues because the work they do is, is just so important and takes a, a toll on you. Emotionally, it takes a huge toll on you emotionally, you know, and I think they are, they are a little bit unsung, honestly.
3: Yeah, much like the uh, real life Slenderman case in Wisconsin, this film serves as a wake up call for the kids that are consuming content online. But it's, it's the kids, the TikTokers that are discovering this film and making it resurface from time to time. What are your thoughts on the disconnect between parents monitoring and kids consuming content online? What changes need to happen?
4: Well, a lot. I mean, it's, it's you know, I remember years ago, it must have been like 10 years ago when uh, an 11 year old uh, got a hold of contact information and wrote to me and she said, you know, now I understand what my mom has been telling me for the last two years. I didn't understand it till I saw your movie. Uh, I'm 11 years old. And, and, and and I was like, what are you doing watching my movie? How did you get even access to my movie? Because the the places that are showing it have warnings all over about, you know, you have to be over the year, 18 years old to, to watch this movie. I said, do your parents not monitor what it is that you're watching? And she said, no, you know, they basically leave me to, to watch whatever I want. And, that's a real issue. I mean, uh, it's, you know, I understand that a lot of the, the the people who watched it on TikTok are are young, you know, and and I never made this movie for kids. I, I never even made it for, for people who were as young as Amber and Rachel at the time. So to, to watch, I made it for adults. I made it for people who are my age to watch, but it was the kids who found it and it was the kids who talked about it and maybe that was the way that it was always going to to get out there but i didn't not intentionally on my part you know i didn't i didn't make it for that audience you know and i also didn't make it really for the horror film audience the horror film audience picked it up
0: obviously you know hearing from the tiktokers and everything was that the catalyst to making you know putting out your your now famous warning video that has been going viral out there
4: well, you know, after the first screening that we did at the Harmony Gold Theater in, in Los Angeles, so one of my friends came up to me and said, okay, you've made the feel bad movie of the year. What you need to do before you show this movie is you need to give people a warning, you know, and uh, I think the next screening was at USC. Um, so I gave them a warning. I, I said, you know, this movie goes into very dark subject matter. And I explained this and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just trying to pump up your movie before you show it. And I was like, fine, just roll the movie. But, you know, I did feel like, uh, obligated at that point, uh, 14 years ago to, to or, or 12 years ago to, to warn people about the extremity that, that the movie takes them to. And sometimes after the conversations, like if Mark Klass was there or something like that, I would run something else. You know, I I think at at USC, I I ran a a Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck cartoon before everybody walked off into the night after the movie, you know, because you you need to kind of decompress a little bit. A lot of people do need to decompress after watching it. And I think we lost Amber.
0: Oh, is she gone? Well, hopefully she'll uh, pop back on two set pieces. I wanted to ask about whereabouts they were one being that whole creepy dungeon and uh, also the under the bridge scene where she has her teddy bear up behind the bridge. And we see that scene with Josh.
4: Yeah. The, uh, the creepy dungeon was actually a filming location. They, they rent it out for movies. It's uh, based in in a church in downtown Los Angeles and it's been used in, in a lot of uh, films. You know, my wife is a location agent, so she knows where all these locations are. And she said, "Well, this this place could work for you." And it w- it was a little more gothic than what I had originally intended uh, for that location, but but it it just had a great feel, especially when I thought, "Okay, we could just shoot this thing. We could just light it with a, a flashlight in most for most of the time." And it'll work, you know, the under the bridge was actually in Griffith Park. It's uh, just just off of the the where the curve happens on Western Avenue to Los Feliz Boulevard. And um, there's yeah, there's just this very pleasant kind of walking uh, walkway over there with all, all these uh, cultivated uh, grounds and stuff like that. And that's where that was.
3: Yes, yeah, for Rachel and Adam and, and Amber, uh, at the time of filming, since you were both closer to the ages uh, of your characters you portray in the film, in your middle school or high school experiences, did you ever come across any real-life stories of internet sexual predators online that perhaps were stalking someone you know or a friend of a friend type of situation?
6: Luckily, personally, I did not. I can't say the same for some of my friends, but I I really didn't have any personal experience with anything like this, although I knew from the news and, you know, other outlets that this stuff kind of ha- did happen. So I it wasn't a totally new thing in my world, but it wasn't something that was so close to heart or personal for me.
0: So, Rachel, what have you been up to since? What are you up to now? Are you still acting? What can we see you in?
6: <laughs> I haven't actually. Um, I'm always happy to come back to talk about this film um, again because I'm so I'm so invested in everything that Michael made this movie for. Um, and like I said, especially being a parent now, it's even more relevant. Yeah, I, I really, I, like I said, I'm not really on social media and I'm kind of doing my own thing outside of the entertainment industry.
0: And then Michael yourself, obviously, what projects are you currently working on? You've been a busy guy. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. I mean, I
4: just directed my sixth episode of The Rookie. I'm, I'm here actually right now in Vancouver to direct Big Sky, and then I'll direct Kung Fu. My next feature is is just in the process of getting cast, uh, which is nice because I, I wrote myself a comedy. Because nobody hires me to do comedy. They hire me to do horror and, and action and, and sci-fi and stuff, which is all fine and fun. But... You know, I, I love uh, comedy and, and uh, so I I wrote myself, uh, again, based on a true story about the theft of thousands of Barbie dolls in a little town in America. Uh, I wrote a movie uh, called Guthrie, which we're, we're going to go into production in next next year. So that'll, that'll be fun. I wish Amber was back here because I did want to say one thing about the performances. I mean, you know, when people criticize the movie, sometimes they criticize the performances. And, and I have to tell you. You know, I've already said that their their personalities, the Rachel and Amber, are radically different than the characters that they play, number one. But number two, you know, Rachel came probably with the most acting experience, you know, certainly more than Amber did at that that point, you know, whether it be theater at school or, or whatever. And what I was striving to get was the, the feeling like there was no acting going on at all. And sometimes people latch on to that because it doesn't feel like like a polished uh, performance, which is exactly what I was trying to get. And they say, well, this movie really freaked me out. Uh, but the performances uh, weren't, weren't great and stuff. Well, the movie can't freak you out if you don't care about the characters. You know, the fact that the movie freaks you out at the end, end of the day I is know. because these people feel real. To you and that's a, a tribute to amber and rachel and, and
0: what they did and amber just yeah i think yeah. she popped amber. back on yeah
6: her phone died but um, i
5: think
6: she's
0: trying to oh hey, amber welcome back yeah michael was just gushing about your incredible performance
5: oh thank you i mean he was an amazing he's an amazing director cinematographer i couldn't have been luckier to have the first thing i've done like i did like that with anyone else i got blessed so lucky
0: Kudos to you and Rachel. Your performances are fantastic and it's really why it's resonated with people. It's incredibly realistic and believable. And what you guys end up pulling off, especially in those last 22 minutes, we take with us forever. And that's a rare thing. So amazing job.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate all the support, everyone watching. And, And mainly just for, you know, the word being spread on how Michael said something a long time ago when we were filming, you know, people used to lurk behind bushes outside your window and stuff. And people can still do that. But now they're behind computers. You know, they're, they're finding out where you live and who you are and who your family is just by a screen. So it's even scarier. I think now it's getting even, it's progressively getting more scarier by the minute.
0: We asked this question to Rachel and we wanted to pose it to you as well. Are you still acting? Are there upcoming projects in the works?
5: So I stopped acting for a bit right after filming. My mom got really sick. Um, and so I was caring for her and I cared for her for, you know, the past, uh, eight, nine years. And um, after she passed, I started kind of living again, you know, um, figuring things out. So I would love to get back into that. Um, I really kind of want to get back in I want to get into writing. I love writing. I love writing screenplays. And uh, kind of like how Michael does, you know, how he likes writing things about significant things and things that matter. Um, I have a few ideas on things like that as well. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would love to get into that. I think more than acting. I love acting too. Down for that. But yeah, I think writing is just something I'm really passionate about at this point in my life.
2: Did you guys keep anything from the production, like being it was your first movie, like any costuming or?
5: I still have the scripts. And because it was low budget, a lot of the things that were in the film were actually they belong to us already. So we had them. Um, that whole Billy bear that everyone talks about. That was actually my mom's old bear. Aww. So that's somewhere um, in a, a box somewhere, I think, in my storage. But yeah, I'm not sure about Rachel. I'm sure I'm sure she has things
6: yeah kind of the same. I was just gonna say the, the emotional
5: roller coaster that it was was
6: quite enough
0: to, <laughs> to <get away. laughs>
6: and the catch. And I mean like we said we you know me and uh, Amber and Michael still keep in touch and other projects that I worked on, you know, it's you become a family and then it kind of disperses and that's it. I, I've never carried a relationship like we have for so many years. Anytime the movie comes back up, we're just right back on it with each other. So that's really important to me. That's a very special thing.
0: Listen, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It's been really enlightening and it's been really a thrill talking to all of you. You guys have been incredible.
5: No, thank you guys.
0: In the U.S. alone, an estimated 460,000 children are reported missing every year. To help in the fight to stop crimes against children, visit classkids.org. That's classkids, K-L-A-A-S-K-I-D-S. That was the Brew Crew
3: Podcast, episode 185. Special thanks to our guests, Michael Goy, Rachel Quinn, and Amber Perkins.
0: Follow at Michael Goy on Twitter, at Cinemaguy on Instagram, and at Amber Ashley Ann on Instagram, and Amber Ashley underscore Ann on Twitter. Megan is Missing is available on VOD and on demand.
2: Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet
1: screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand. And Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network.
6: Bye.